0: Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. Today, we're bringing you a very special VaynerMedia mashup. We have two fantastic interviews for you from Jeff Nicholson, who is the chief media officer, followed by Patrick Givens, who is the head of VaynerSmart.
1: Kicking off our interview with Jeff, let's hear from him now. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews. I'm David Breer, and today I'm sitting here with Jeff Nicholson. So Jeff, how's it going? Lovely to meet you. Thanks for swinging by. I think you literally landed like five, six hours ago to, to London. Is that right? That, that is right. Thank you for having me. No worries. And you are the chief media officer of VaynerMedia. Uh, as of today, still, yes. <laughs> well, let's see how the interview goes. And uh, if that, uh, if it's bad and it gets back, then that's not a good thing. Then I'll let you know if Gary texts me. Fingers crossed yeah. for you. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your role. It would be wonderful to, I think, we'll start with a bit of your background. How did you get into this? It must be a pretty difficult job as well. Is Gary a nice boss? He's yeah. like, how does that go?
2: He is a great boss. Um, I think it's definitely a challenge. I'd say, you know, first and foremost, I've been in this space for over 10 years um, and really kind of fell into it. So I was in the finance space. Um, Always pretty good at math and fell into looking for a funner job. I was in private wealth, didn't really enjoy the space, um, wasn't receiving kind of training and investment from senior leadership uh, and fell into running ads on Google at a small startup, um, which is now a huge company called iProspect. And I think I was employee number 80 in their original Watertown office and taught myself how to run ads on brands like Brooks Brothers and others um, and fell in love within two weeks. And the concept of architecting both the copy and analyzing the data and understanding customer segmentation uh, and having that level of control as a very young individual uh, was extremely exciting and and created an early passion for me uh, and predominantly have been uh, in the space since. So learned all kind of the tricks of the trade and buying, um, have bought almost uh, every media channel uh, in the space and then uh, moved to executive positions running uh, senior leadership at social code so i ran the advertising group there obviously um, have grown the vayner media division quite a bit um previous to that worked at a startup called lead karma that sold to a public company Bankrate.
1: great loads of experience in this background Then, so what brings you to to london came
2: to visit the team um, first and foremost wanted to start off the year fresh uh, have over 15 employees uh, in the london office and then wanted to visit some of our top clients and platforms
1: Excellent. Well, like, the, the weather's probably not treating you very well. It's, like, a pretty crappy, well, I guess, a consistent London... Well, no, it's a huge London. improvement.
2: Huge improvement really? because New York is super cold right now. Right, okay. So you I was... You've traded up
1: to, like, yeah. like drizzle and smog for yeah, I mean, just I, cold.
2: I went up about 35 degrees, so that was a big
1: win for me. I'll take the rain. Fine. Well, it's, it's nice suddenly somebody thinks London weather is good. That's great. So maybe a little bit more on, on what you do at Vayner then. So what, what is it that the, the chief media officer actually does? You know, what is it that you deliver to clients?
2: Yeah, I, I think... I think first and foremost, I'm responsible for the output of the media division and services. Classically, we put those in kind of four buckets. It would be planning, execution, analytics, and then ad tech. So that's kind of my purview at the company. And then from a day-to-day perspective, I do anything from recruiting to senior clients to dealing with Google and Facebook and our our partnership there, or spending time vetting vendors that we want to partner with. And really, uh, lastly, most importantly, investing time in the team to make sure that we're we're developing people's careers and skill sets.
1: And how are you finding, I guess, because you've got some pretty big clients sort of globally, how are you finding working with sort of more older traditional organizations? Because I guess people have come to digital they weren't sort of born in the digital space so how is the adoption of sort of digital practices and processes in, and just purely a an analytical loop to actually look at what was happening is, is somewhat a bit of a mystery sometimes yeah it?
2: no i think it's a great point i use quite often that vayner was born in the digital era as opposed to a lot of the companies are you know to your point kind of growing into it or maturing into it so i think it's a challenge for people because one it's a challenge and change and process Two, it's something that a lot of people have to educate themselves on. Classically, if you were in the the advertising space or a buyer, your space or your need for education has doubled because, you know, all of the new channels have come up and they're more complex. They're difficult to understand. You have to invest in that time to make sure that you can continue to foster the right success for your business. Um, so process changes, education changes, and then fundamental beliefs, right, I think is the hardest thing, right? People look at what's worked in the past almost as a, le- a religion. I love when everyone says, oh, I, I going to buy 100 GRPs, and that's going to deliver something. That formula does not exist. There is no holy grail for every brand. And so I think that you have to find what works each individual brand or company. Um, and I think that's a
1: difficult road for a lot of companies who are very established
2: and you know have partnerships that were predicated on old
1: models. I guess the, the B2 the types of things that you, you know, you get people to invest in is you see the real material, you know, the, the analytical background of this is, is like, you know, yes, and no, right? You see the return or you don't see the return.
2: Yeah, I think it's easier for certain clients, right? I think if you're a, you know, a retail client where you sell 90% of your stuff online, and you have straight return and ad spend numbers that you can go off of, it's it's more black and white math. Yeah. I think it's harder for classic, let's say CBG companies, or even, you know, financial service companies, where it's not a direct one to one in all the products they sell. And, tying that feedback loop or understanding the proxies for success becomes a lot harder.
1: I guess you finding educating people in that space, because obviously there's a, you know, lots of things in the, you know, the sort of programmatic buying space that's been, uh, you know, particularly within obviously the clients that we have within financial services, it, it becomes a, a a fear point to a certain degree. You know, I've, uh, you've heard horror stories of one client finding themselves being advertised on another client's a website or whatever, you know, and, yeah. or even worse, some, you know, really rather risque websites that, uh, Are sort of out there so like how how do you sort of guide people through this process yeah i think first we
2: try to understand where they're on the spectrum so from an education and understanding of of how their business is operated their supply chain their tech stack their agency roster and, and partner selection and really do an audit of how much they understand how much transparency they have and then what are the biggest variables of impact that i can either train them or teach them that will have material impact on their bottom line And so I usually start there because I can't teach people the right thing until I know what they do or don't know. And then typically we'll start really, I, I preach fundamentals. It's funny that even in today's day and age, and I love that you just smiled, when you look at Google, right, search is such a mature platform, but you could look at the Fortune 500 and majority of them still have bad search setups in a variety of manners. Either people are not playing defense on their own brand and other people are, you know, kind of attacking their keyword or they're not doing ancillary terms for branding or whatever it may be. Um, it's just disappointing that even in this marketplace, when these, com- you know, these products have been over 10 years old, you can still find every. Day, um, new evolution needed, and so I really try to preach fundamentals on the on the largest scale because they're going to have material impact on people's businesses.
1: I think that uh, you know I smiled at that point because I, I find. This suffers a little bit from everybody thinking they're an expert, right? And actually, it's um, similar to the design industry to a certain degree. Everybody believes they, you know, they see things, they use things, therefore, they're an expert in something. So, and actually, the difference between somebody who really gets it and actually can ex- uh, execute at pace, uh, the returns that you see off the back of that are dramatically different, right? One hundred percent. I think that typically you can you can identify the
2: difference in. In reading headlines versus understanding the depth of a topic pretty quickly if you know the questions to ask. Viewability is my favorite. Everyone loves to throw benchmarks for viewability but never even mentions what vendor they're using because there's a large delta between the two, three largest viewability partners in the world. So if you're identifying a benchmark, for example, well, that's got to be comma vendor. Right. And I think that adopting benchmarks from two years ago for programmatic purposes may not be applicable to some of the other channels. Um, I think those are the nuances where people. I think, lose the value and try to pretend to be specialists as opposed to really tangibly going in and, and understanding the difference in, in the nuance of, of those metrics or those platforms.
1: So I guess media more generally then. So me, media, we're, we're seeing quite a lot of shifting, aren't we? We're, like Is this just the new sort of normal for marketing? You know, like we're, we're seeing a move away from lots of big you know brand awareness campaigns and, and much more about doing something and marketing it. The authenticity that you sort of feel from people who are doing this a lot better, yep. you know, to be a lot more of a connection with their customers than actually the ones that are, you know, just dropping 100 million on TV campaigns. Well, like, how, yeah. how do you see that changing? And actually, does that affect the, I guess, the channels that people are using? But also, it kind of makes it less fakeable to me, you know, this feels like you have to really earn it. Yeah, I think it's all of the
2: above. So I think that there will be a shift away from just branding awareness campaigns, right? Because there's more than one channel available for mass reach in today's marketplace. So first and foremost, I think that that will be a change, although that won't go away. I still, you know, just... People label Vayner as social or digital. I believe in every marketing channel it has its place. You have to understand the value to your business. Yeah. I don't really care whether we spend money on TV, radio, or Facebook, or Google. I care what works. Yeah. right? So I think if you start in that approach, then you're fine. I think the second piece is going to be the shift of balance between understanding that, yes, creative is the variable and people still want an emotional response. And authenticity sells even more in today's market than ever. Um, but then there's also going to be a balance of customer segmentation and personalization. People... Expect brands to have a higher level of service in all of the experiences they have with that brand. I kind of call it brand totality, right? So if you're gonna go on the the app, well you expect them to know who you are. And in financial services, I not only expect them to know who you are, I expect very curated service because I gave you all my money. And seems like a fair trade, doesn't doesn't it? it All my money for a good service Yeah, and when you sell me a credit card, should you send me snail mail and abuse my inbox? at my home or should you send me a customized message in my app based on my spending behavior and what would maximize my value. I don't think brands are at that level yet. I think they want to be there. Mm -hmm. So I think that that will always be an expectation and that complexity becomes a lot harder and needs new skills and new processes and new creative. But I don't think that completely replaces the also need for great branding awareness campaigns that are, you know, people use the term hero video. I still think that exists as well. I just think you need a, a combination of both to have the optimal output for a
1: brand's relationship yeah. with consumers. In a an amazing way, it's blurring of the lines of all of the all of the above, isn't it? Actually what I, we talk a lot about the the move away from products to services. And actually, you know, the experience that you've just talked about is like a push notification is a, it's a it is marketing, but it's right. uh, it's service marketing. Yeah. And I, and I kind of find that that move reinforces the relationship that actually people have and it, it feels like a completely different way of creating that community yeah i mean if you you think about text message right i don't think that's really moved to a level
2: of brand to consumer yet i think it's starting most of the previous messages have been abuse they're more like 10 year old spam emails Right, that you probably received from me back in the day, so apologize. But when you start to get a brand who can actually have an automated bot type engagement, either on a Facebook Messenger or on just on, on chat from your phone, well that engagement and behavior in association with that brand completely changes. So all of a sudden you alert me something and it's a proactive appreciation. Well, I'm going to have a better experience with that. And that's now the expectation I want for my brand, even if I was to switch. So all of a sudden, if I switch, let's say to another bank and they don't do that, I'm going to go back because that becomes the variable of like, these are the new qualifications. I think that's just starting. I think people really expect a new level of service. And I think part of that's going to be those customizations, but the ability for someone to approve the message on text message and feel that connection is a whole nother level of respect for that brand. I mean, how many brands do you text right now?
1: Very, very few. That's right. And not in a good way, ever. And the few
2: that you do are typically the ones that you have a great relationship with. For example, mine's Delta. Mm -hmm. I love Delta. I fly all over the world. I use them consistently. But I have service from Delta where if they send me a text, I appreciate it. It's usually a gate change or it's a flight change. It's a proactive notification to improve my service and performance. Now, they might start flagging, where is the Delta lounge? Those things are not spam. They're not negative in any way, but it would be negative if they were speaking to the wrong person or they messed up my message. So it's the balance of complexity of, yes, it's worth it, but it's very hard to deliver.
1: We found actually, uh, and it builds up brand equity, doesn't it? You know, the the positivity of if anything ever does Go wrong, then actually the you're starting from a much more positive place. Right. You know we've we've seen this with a lot of the challenger banks in the UK. Actually, they've had some outages, but they've got such a positive uh, equation with their customer base that actually people are so much more forgiving if actually you've uh, you've built up that trust with people. Right. But um, it's really interesting though. You know you talk about different distribution points and like you say whether it's social or whether it's more traditional media or whether it's uh, you know physical media. Like h- how do you work with people to sort of figure out which lever is going to work for them and you know which ones uh, i guess you rising the most
2: yeah i think first i would start client right so if you think about a client if i'm going to start with a large-scale bank um, they probably have a pre-described distribution channel and pattern that they're already following versus a new challenger brand may have nothing so i think that will dictate where i would start and then the second thing is let's say in the new challenger brand they have certain dollar restrictions or requirements that will preclude them from doing a large super bowl commercial Right, So those things are are the variables first. Outside of that, I would say that the biggest rising tide, obviously, is digital. Everyone knows that. I think the bigger focus for me is the application of what digital truly is and then eliminating the waste. Everyone's talking about transparency and brand safety and supply chain, but I don't think they're actually doing anything about it at a tactical level because most of the controls for those things already exist. Mm -hmm. Right? For example, YouTube. If you're going to turn off YouTube – because you got 1% of your traffic to go on a publisher site, well, who would do that? A large-scale brand that's a financial bank needs to be more risk-averse because they can offend people at a larger scale very quickly. But if I'm the challenger brand, am I really worried that 1% of my impressions was served in association with a message that I may not want my... Probably not. And then my consumers, depending on who I'm targeting... Are they really associating the pre-roll ad with the video? Probably not because they understand how YouTube works. Yeah. So I think it's, there's a lot of variables to understand, but I think the big one is client, audience, and then KPI and how do we apply the, the variables that we have access to to each of those business segments.
1: It's, it's interesting, because like, like you said a little bit earlier on, uh, the sort of space for original content, the space for the creative being the kind of key on these things, because there's, there's multiple different variables in here. Like, how much do you guys sort of focus on that uh, you oh, know, I think original content the structure? Yeah, I think it's imperative.
2: So one of the biggest reasons I joined Vayner was that I believe that media and creative have to be together. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a few years ago, I spent a half a billion dollars in one year of other people's money, and I never spoke to a creative agency, right. ever. Now, in some cases, I had clients give me $50 million and like three pieces of creative. Now, that's not really a great treatment of that money or their customers or even an application of of a measurement agenda. And so for me, joining Vayner was about how do we put out the best work for the optimal outcome for the client? Well, the first was structure. How do you have media and creative come together? So for us, I kind of, I always use the analogy that we're at a restaurant and media is the waiter. Um, I have to set the table. I have to put everybody in the right seat. I have to make sure they're happy. But then everybody orders something differently. Customer segmentation. So this person ordered chicken, and this person wants fish, and this person's a vegetarian. Well, they want different messages. The restaurant needs to speak to them differently. But why do people come back to restaurants? The food. Creative is the variable. So if you're exponentially better at creative... Well, then you get a larger impact. My thing is I want to eliminate all the variables that you would ever lose for in media. Bad service, ugly table, didn't you know? come back for response times. All of those variables in the actual media world is what? Audience segmentation, purchasing, best practices on reach and frequency, creative rotation. Now, if I've eliminated all the weaknesses that I could have there... Then what stands out? The creative variable. And that's where brands shine because that's where they establish a consumer relationship and an emotional connection that will transcend anything else. Because if you're not a commodity product, or even if you are, that's why people pay double.
1: Agree. And uh, that's um, absolutely spot on. If those things are a problem for you, don't go out for dinner in London, I'm just going to say <laughs> as well, because uh, you, you're going to be disappointed pretty quick. So, so who's doing this well? Because like, there's a, you know, you can look at different slices of this out there. There's people doing great things in social, there's people doing mm-hmm. great things in uh, more sort of traditional media. You know, we've got people kind of turning up to see uh, TV ads being released from things like John Lewis over here. Like, who, who do you think's really got everything together now? And uh... No one. Okay. Nobody. I think that
2: um, people We're have it in pockets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even myself, I don't think we have it together. Um, I think that everybody has challenges in different areas, and, and everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And I think that given the space, and well, I'll just talk about media for a second, given how complex it is, if you're looking at a global client across 10 platforms and the nuances of DMPs and tracking and ad serving, there are very few companies that will do that end-to-end perfect. What you end up picking for is, you know, hopefully not procurement and pricing, but more, what am I trying to do in the next three years and what matches best of the services and the price point I want to do. Um, but I don't think anyone's doing it well. I think people are doing it in really good buckets. And I think that you're seeing, you know, for the holding companies, for example, a lot of them are trying to rebrand under one umbrella and go more of a classic Vayner 1970s under one roof model. I believe in that. I think it's a good shift for them. I think other are going extreme specialists. That's also fine because there are some companies in the world who don't want creative externally. They want it internally. They only need a media company. So I believe that specialization or aggregation is is imperative across the board, but I don't think anyone's nailed
1: it. It feels like the whole, you know, the the strategy to this is smart tactics right right. this is about it's, it's
2: also appreciation for what your weakness is you know i did an rfi the other day where someone asked me okay it's a global pitch huge consumer electronics company and the first thing i said is i will only service half your business because they were very specifically set up in APAC and Other. And I said, although I could do some things in this market for you, I'm, the, I'm not the best partner. I think being truthful and realistic about what you can service and deliver at an A-plus level is more imperative than trying to get the win.
1: And, and how have you found this? Because we've had very similar conversations with the procurement people, and they're not used to this type of conversation, right? They you know, are it's, not. Quite, it's quite a... He was pretty yeah, shocked. Yeah, like, you know, I'm sorry, but we might not be the right people if yeah. this is the thing. You know, it's quite an interesting type yeah. of dialogue to have. With it's, them. A, it's a weird sales pitch in In a way, I will say, like, I think people
2: appreciate the candidness. I think Gary and I um, try to almost be a little shocking in that regard, but also just to show how truthful we are in in our mission. I mean, I'll offer flat commission pricing across every media channel, just so people know that I won't allocate inefficiently anything outside of performance. Now, is that beneficial to me in the long run from a margin grab? Absolutely not. But does it establish a better relationship with my client and probably create longevity and trust early on?
1: Yes, I'll trade those every day. So one of the things that caught my eye in, in terms of the things that uh, you guys do is the 4D workshops that you've got yeah. coming through. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Because sure. it feels like a um, an interesting sort of model in terms of, you know, things that have been working really well for you that actually now feel like it's a kind of a, a cultural speed up for everybody else. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's a combination of two really distinct things. One, um, Gary's brand.
2: Obviously, Gary has a large following that skews all the way from the Fortune 100 to startup and everywhere in between. And then I say it's the... Company's passion for education coming together. So, what we wanted to do is bring the value that we've created in the building um, by building our services and and being you know kind of consistently focused on learning and education, and pair that with the people who want access to the, that exclusive information through Gary's network and brand. Um, so, we've invited a lot of different types of businesses, startups, um, we have larger scale companies, everybody in between, to come in for a one day conference or, or a seminar or whatever you'd like to label it uh, and learn from the different departments in Vayner and maximize an educational opportunity that would be customized to their business and hopefully let them avoid some landmines, uh, hopefully let them be educated so they can make better decisions in their business the next day, uh, and then hopefully form some type of relationship with Vayner. And that might be as simple as I've had a few of them send me their media allocations and ask me where they're wrong. And I've had others that said, could you please evaluate my tech stack As I think I'm getting ripped off. And we'll do those things as extra for free because, again, the whole premise is education
1: um, and empowering people to, to have more successful businesses. Sounds good. It's uh, and, and I guess this is the type of thing that you'll be uh, coming over to London a little bit more frequently for as well. Huh? Yeah, so um, we pretty much have all our executives do um, a lot of the classes, and then some of
2: our rising talent as well. So we use it as a training ground for our internal team as well. And then I personally teach a lot of the classes just because I'm very passionate about education and small-medium businesses. So I'll be coming over to London for the first
1: uh, annual 4Ds to do them myself. Awesome. Going back a little bit back to financial services, what is it, do you think, given that most of the organizations, I guess, in this space, and I know you, you do some pretty uh, large-scale work with some of the, the U.S. banks, what is it the banks can do better in this place? I, I guess for, for our audiences, this is the thing that they're going to be, tell us what to do, how do we fix this, you know? Yeah, I, I'd say the first one is is understand internally who you are
2: and how you need to shift. Um, it's not a function of, I need to understand what programmatic advertising is or, you know, the nuances of the DMP that I purchased. I think the larger scale leadership teams at, at traditional banks and financial service institutions need to identify that first and foremost, they need to change in order to service their clients of the future. Um, And so uh, easy example, I had a large scale bank where I looked at them. I said, are you looking at the retention or upsell of your products and services or even customer satisfaction associated with your app usage? Because if you classically ask anyone in their business under 30 years old or their their customers, excuse me, 90% of the engagements are app only. You know, I mean, my team is very young. I skew probably average age is probably 24 of the 225 people. I've asked the question, have any of you walked into a bank? There's a large majority who have never physically walked into a brick-and-mortar bank. So classically, if an an institution is judging their customer service and engagement and their brand experience in just brick-and-mortar, well, they're going to be in trouble. But if they're also not understanding that not only that's going to be a smaller portion, but mobile is going to be the significant factor of their staying power – well, then you need to shift your research and your insights and your availability to what is important to your future protection of your business. Um, so it's really internal focus and understanding what is your corporate structure need to be to survive in the future. Not necessarily I need to be extremely educated in viewability metrics uh, as the first step.
1: And, and I think that's, that's why... All of this for me just comes back to it isn't about the channel you're using. It isn't about a technology. It's it's the the cultural shift within really really large organizations yes. just to stay relevant. Right? That's right. And then you know to our earlier conversation around procurement, then you have to pick partners that are
2: aligned with your roadmap and vision over the next three to five years. Because shifting companies every year isn't going to help you. Because continuity is key in some regards. Having checks and balances in your organization to make sure that that partner stays committed to your. Goals and benefit is imperative. Um, And then having a fundamental kind of strategy around how you're going to get there, um, I think, is the biggest need outside of them addressing their internal structures. Cool.
1: So a few questions we sort of love to uh, ask everybody just to get a bit of a, like, these are things I struggle with, quite frankly. So, like, uh, number one productivity tip, how do you stay on top of everything? Uh, (laughs) Wow, that one's a really tough one. My biggest productivity tip would
2: be... um, I'm going to steal one from Gary because I I will say I'll give him credit, and I hate to do that, especially in public, but is create extra hours. So I'm obsessed with 11 o'clock to 2 a.m. I work all the time because no one bothers me. I can do all my own to-do lists, and then I make my list for the morning. So I would say create new time for yourself that's focused and dedicated to your your goals personally is the one I've used that's had the most impact on my life.
1: Sounds good. Um, And what's the best career advice you've been given? I'm sure you've uh, had a a lot, but um, what's the one that stands out? Um, It
2: was helping my father. I think he, he gave me the biggest advice ever was find people that you want to spend time with every day because you spend more time with the people at work than you do with your family. And as a big family guy who wants to spend time with my kids and my wife, I think that it it's a really unique thing to understand. And I think it's why I have a lot of employees who have been with me four or five and six years, um, because you find great joy in each other. And I think you can, you can continue to embrace that and and grow together.
1: Yeah, It's amazing how much hiring for culture is such a critical thing for scaling the team.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have very simple core principles that we go after and we generally try to, um, organically grow more often than incorporating other people just because I think it's easier to identify and create similarities in that case and, and kind of passion in, in the same principles. Um, then try to reteach some kind of skill sets.
1: That's fantastic. Thanks very much for joining us, Jeff. Where where can people find out more about you? They can find out more
2: about uh, vayner.com, vaynermedia.com. And uh, I appreciate you having me as well. Thank you so much for the time.
1: No problem. Thank you.
3: We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing FinTech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price.
0: Great to hear from Jeff and everything that they're working on with the Vegan Media Machine. Next up, Simon spoke to Patrick Givens, head of VaynerSmart, about the role of voice marketing and Internet of Things. Over to them.
3: Welcome to Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor from 11FS, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Patrick Givens, Head of IoT and Marketing Innovation at VaynerMedia. Patrick, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Really excited to have you with us on Fintech Insider. Could you tell us a little bit about you, who are you, and what's your role at VaynerMedia?
4: Absolutely, yeah. So I actually joined VaynerMedia two years ago after a background of about a decade in creative services, advertising agencies, mostly working in the client service and strategy departments and a bit on the innovation side. But when I came over two years ago to Vayner, it was to start this new group called Smart, which is how we take the proposition of VaynerMedia, which is finding consumer attention where it's underpriced and actionable. We can do something with this hmm. and looking at what that means after social marketing. And after even what we probably think of today as digital marketing, stretching that out. What are the new touch points that are going to emerge as the Internet of Things develops? And very pertinent to today as the voice platforms start to launch,
3: well, that's the platform of the future, as many people have been saying. Right. Uh, this voice platform, everything from your kind of uh, Google Home to, uh, to the equivalents from Amazon, and, and you've now got uh, Siri's been around for some time, and Cortana. These things are in our homes now. These things are right. normal for consumers. So what is voice marketing? How would you define that?
4: Yeah, so I think we're looking at it in a couple of capacities today. We think about, first and foremost, what is the interaction that a brand can have via audio? And what does that audio identity look like? What is the equity they're building in the way that they sound and the types of conversations they foster? So for us, that can be done through published audio. It could be something like a podcast. Uh, It could be other formats in which short form audio is designed and distributed out through these channels. But then can also be conversational AI, something where we have a bit more of an interaction and where we're actually looking not necessarily to blast a message out to as many people as possible, but instead sort of invite them to lean in and start a conversation that we as a brand or publisher will engage with and kind of come back in something a bit more dynamic. So it's like
3: trying to build that filter almost through the conversational AI to understand if there's a propensity there for that consumer to want your product to engage with your brand in some way rather than just, yeah, as you say, it's not just a a blast. This is, how do I have this conversation and how do I look for those clues in that conversation that actually there's a propensity to like my brand here or a propensity to want to buy my product?
4: Very much so, yeah. I think it's about finding occasions where the right customer for a given client or a given publisher is actually interested in engaging in a little more of a conversation where there's some utility to be provided.
3: So as we bring that into kind of financial services, in the old world of financial services, we had the uh, the interactive voice recorder, the IVR, yeah, and, and this is where you've been on the telephone and it's press one to hate yourself, press two to hate the phone, press three to yeah. speak to an operator type thing.
4: Just shout operator from then on? Uh,
3: yeah. yeah, just shout at the, shout at the phone. How's that evolving? Because I, I hear a lot of people in financial services talking about, okay, so what's this voice thing and what do we do and shall we just build a chatbot or shall we build a conversational AI? Right. How do you think about starting down this journey?
4: Yeah, so I think there's a number of directions that you can take an experience in voice, some of which might be More educational. Maybe it's about market insights that are being distributed and giving folks the opportunity to tap in on at their prerogative, at their timing to insights relevant to their own portfolio or their own areas of interest. Or maybe it's very utility driven. Maybe it's simply checking account balances, checking your own spending patterns, getting ready access to that information where you are and in a way that is as easy as possible to surface what's relevant.
3: And how do you think about the emotional response of that consumer to their money through voice, right? Because money is a very sensitive subject. Right. Like I, I don't mind saying good morning to, to my uh, right. kind of speaker device in, in my home and it telling me the weather. Do I mind it reading out my bank account balance? Yeah, maybe. So yeah. there's there's a lot to think through there.
4: Yeah, it's quite a lot in the design side. I think there's a couple components there too, right? There's the intimacy and impact of voice and of audio, of having a real conversation about something rather than navigating a screen on your phone where you can drag down your menus and jump about. In this case, you're really, you're asking questions, you're getting answers. And so there is an emotional component to that. We have physiological reaction to perceiving information through audio that is different than the way we navigate visually and the way we react. Uh, money and finance is certainly having a deep emotional tie as well. So there's that component of it. And then there's the logistics, just as you're describing. I don't necessarily want my private data blasted out from a speaker. And so where are the right moments to design for? And how do you ensure that you, you know, surface the right information as, as relevantly as possible without Walking into some of those potentially awkward occasions. So
3: we read recently that you guys became uh, J.P. Morgan Chase's agency of choice for their voice marketing. Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that partnership? Because obviously, there's some learnings you've gone through there in terms of people's relationships with how they view a Absolutely. financial services brand.
4: Yeah. So this is a partnership we're extremely excited about at VanderMedia. It's something where, to our knowledge, it's the first of its kind relationship uh, in the space for the voice marketing and voice product development. So. What gets so exciting here is that we're moving in a relationship with Morgan Chase from something more executional, from where we might have a specific product in mind, start there, and just dig right into design a little further upstream. And so we're working with them across their many business units, and these guys do a bit of everything in the financial space, to understand what those different types of customers are, business case by business case. And then, based on that, try and identify what are the right uses for these new channels.
3: Because you've kind of got the really interesting... Um, paradigm, as you mentioned a few answers ago, where yeah. there isn't a visual interaction, so designing without the visuals, absolutely. Well, it's a different skill set, and so now you're talking about thinking about what, well, and also it's not only that. I've got the added complexity of well, a global bank like J.P. Morgan Chase has a lot of products for a lot of different customer bases, right. and then the third dynamic, which is actually these these devices in people's houses and this conversational AI can gather information before I'm pushing marketing at people. So how my listening before i'm speaking right so what does that process of engagement look like as you start one of these projects what are the first few things you think about and what does your process start to look like
4: yeah so uh we will start so in this case let's use the jp morgan chase example take a given business unit and really dig into what their process of uh reaching out to a consumer potential customer uh bringing them in what are the moments of tension in that experience so for instance, uh, a customer who might be considering a home loan, home lending loan, something of that nature. This is, it's, it can be a. Terribly, terribly challenging conversation to start. Uh, hey, when, would you uh, like a loan? <laughs> absolutely. Or flip that around. If I might want a loan, but am I really qualified to have this conversation? Should I? Am I going to embarrass myself walking in front of a loan officer? What is a lower pressure way to engage that conversation? Potentially, a version, a almost an inquiry form kind of experience that might be delivered over what someone could do in their own home, gauge whether they in fact could even qualify. Or are they? Is this a lower pressure way to start that conversation that can then translate over to an in-person interaction to follow through.
3: Can you give me an example of what that sounds like as a conversation?
4: So I think that's exactly what we're developing today. Uh, And as you were mentioning a little before we uh, started filming here, the challenge in the space today is there's very little best practice to fall back on. Everything is sort of being developed from scratch. And we have a lot of things changing in real time. We have what the platforms are capable of delivering, evolving every day, And we have user expectation and user comfort levels changing very rapidly as well.
3: Completely. So with mobile apps, for instance, we had the dreaded hamburger button uh, Uh, for the menu. And then we had uh, the bottom or the top of the screen. You'd have the key navigational elements. And then you'd have have all of these things that we kind of got used to with touchscreens. We don't have that uh, set of norms yet in voice. So it's kind of very exploratory. But you say you've kind of got this hierarchy of actually how am I understanding what somebody might want and what Right. propensity is, which is new that I didn't have before. I'm learning about the person before I'm starting a conversation with yeah. them. So you're listening before you're talking almost.
4: A bit of that, yeah. And I think it's also something that is very iterative in the way that it's produced. We're not going to be able to probably predict these problems correctly right out of the gate. So a lot of it is designing experiences that you can very quickly optimize and iterate off of. Uh, That's one of the beauties of these voice platforms is that they're all cloud-based. They're always live. We are constantly making updates and pushing out new changes uh, based on what we see in market behavior and even pre-market doing really robust user testing. So you can
3: be data-driven in how effective a response is, which is kind of core cool to what Media has always been about, is really how are the metrics driving kind of what we do. Right. So, um, you, you, so this is that user-led, technology-powered approach yeah. that you, you talk about. Can you expand on that user-led, technology-powered right. piece?
4: Yeah, so I think coming from the innovations perspective here, all too often, we see a lot of excitement about a flashy new technology without a lot of thought about how it might be used. Uh, consumer VR comes to mind. Uh, and a lot of these spaces where there is no doubt great promise in the technology, but we aren't necessarily starting by addressing a consumer need. Uh, one of the beauties in the voice space that we see is, frankly, in many cases, it's a time saver, right? If there is something that is user demanded right now, it's efficiency and saving of time uh, in as many interactions as possible. And so voice very quickly surfacing the right answer, very quickly uh, delivering an action that I request just with a spoken word without having to open an app and navigate through and go into experience. So there's speed there. And then there can also be an element of comfort and of delight in the way that these are delivered. I think that's the step we are at in the space right now.
3: Uh, that comfort and delight I really like. There's, yeah. um, there's a guy who works for a bank called Barclays, uh, Paul Titterton, who said, what is the competitive advantage of a human versus a machine? And a human is there to do that. Hey, you've done it right. Don't right. worry, it's okay. And a machine kind of just hits you with the data. I think we're actually blurring those lines of comfort now a little bit yeah. with, with what the machines can do. Because I imagine you think about what somebody's problem or challenge is day to day. It's like, is has that um, utility bill been paid, or do I have enough right. money to get to to my next payday? And these are my worries and my anxieties? And or like I'm gonna get close to being in my overdraft and I'm running low on right. money. So something that kind of proactively says, hey, you're close to your overdraft, would you like to sweep some money from savings? starts a conversation in a way that's non-threatening, that's helpful, and, and that sort of thing.
4: Yeah, I think that blurry line between what has been the machine component of this and the truly human element is exactly where we like to live and where we like to play. And I think importantly, it's not about removing the human element from the experience at all. It's about porting some of that humanity into the elements of the experience that previously had been really laborious and really just check a box, press a button, move forward with no real sense of interaction and delight to them.
3: And I guess with voice, you're carrying somebody's brand But through a very generic sounding voice. So you have to really think through how that's going to come across and impact someone.
4: Well, right. And even in the choice of what the sound actually is, right? So there's the ability to do text to speech in which it's read in the voice of the platform or recorded audio in which we either record voiceover, sound effects, and really compose a sound palette for a brand. So that's going to be really a critical component of audio branding as this matures.
3: Yeah, I seem to be forever setting off Jeopardy somehow yeah. at home. Yeah, <laughs> hear a lot of Alex Trebek chiming yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I'm curious to know a little bit about VoiceCon. This is a one-day yeah. conference you've got planned coming up for May. What, what is Voic- VoiceCon and who's it for?
4: Yeah, so VoiceCon, this is a Vayner Experience production. We've um, developed the IP for this new event it is going to be May 22nd in New York, and it's for marketing leads, you know, uh, executives who are interested in understanding the future of voice and audio for marketing, for branding, as well as for integration into their business and products. So we're going to be working with some of the leading platforms in the space, some interesting startups who are building some of the auxiliary utilities and um, anything from interesting user testing platforms uh, some who specialize in deployment against specific verticals, uh, on the business side, as well as some of the expertise from our own agency and other from client groups who've we've worked with. That's a
3: really good mix. Cause I think, uh, yeah. I mean, my, uh, my observation of, yeah. of, the banking market and, and a lot of markets is clients, as clients, as you said, a moment ago had come at this space and gone, ah, oh, this is a new tech. What do I do with it? Rather right. than, Actually, what is the new design and set of problems I can do, and what are the new tools, and, yeah. and how can I start to solve problems in a in a really unique way? Because and, and how do I use that? As you say, I think you guys called it. What was the process? The user led, technology powered. Right. Like I really like that phrase. Um, so it's interesting. So what's next for you and for Venus Smart?
4: Yeah. So we are, you know, full. Or ahead. I think we're extremely excited uh, with the JP Morgan Chase relationship, and then other clients who are interested in engaging in this more upstream strategy uh, to inform a real discovery phase that gets us to what those more innovative voice products can be. And then in addition to the voice space, we're doing quite a lot of other IoT marketing, I'll call it. So whether this be connectivity around product packaging or retail systems, connectivity around events, fundamentally what we want to foster is as many previously static touch points in a brand ecosystem, we want to convert those into digital in the sense that they're now interactive. And so as many pieces as possible where I encounter a brand, I ought to be able to engage that brand in some form of conversation.
3: You no, know, that's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? If if I work in marketing in some way, shape or right. form, um, do I buy that from the technologist vendor or do I buy it from the vendor that really or, or the partner that really understands marketing right. and has that in their DNA? Uh, so where can people find out more?
4: Yeah. So you can always follow VaynerMedia on Twitter. Follow myself. It's pat6414. And also uh, checking out the VaynerMedia website. We're constantly updating with new work as it's published.
3: Patrick, thank you for being on Fintech Insider.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And that wraps up a very special insight show. Thanks to Jeff and Patrick and the whole Vayner team, and thank you guys for listening. As always, if you like what you've heard, come talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe, and you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.